Hey, we are continuing on in our series, The Peaks, uh, going through the big picture of the Bible from uh, Genesis through to Revelation from the mask, the mask every week. And now it's on the recording too, because I carried it so smoothly. Uh, No, we're we're continuing The Peaks, our, our big picture story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, seeing that this is God's one big story. Uh, that he has been working out one plan with one hero throughout all of creation and that when we see ourselves in the light of this story, we understand who we are in the light of his grace. Um, I thought I might just quickly start by, by placing you in where we are in this story because uh, you know I get to sit down for hours every week and, and try and hash out exactly how we're going to approach this. So I, I know exactly where we're up to in the story, but it can get a bit... Um, a bit more hairy down on the ground. Uh, we've Last week we saw uh, Matt talk to us about the Davidic covenant, the, the promises to David, the, king, the kingship and the temple. Um, and before that, a week before that, we looked at Israel coming into the land. This week we're looking at the exile of Israel uh, and the return, um, covering a lot in one week, I should say. Uh, and then the week after that, we're, doing, we're having a quick look in the servant songs in Isaiah, the prophet. And then the week after that, we, we're cracking into the New Testament. So we are moving at what might be considered lightning speed, considering we have travelled from, well, over thousands of years of history in about, what is it, five, six weeks, something like that. So. Anyway, like I said, today, though, we're covering uh, the exile uh, and... The return. Um, and, and on the whole, this is a part of the Old Testament story which uh, I don't think we as Christians tend to have a strong grasp of today. And what I don't mean by that is that we're unaware of it. Uh, we, we, you know, by and large, Christians know that the exile was a thing that happened in the Old Testament. Um, we, we know that God sent Israel out from the promised land. Uh, because of disobedience, that enemy armies came, killed many, carried many more off into Babylon as captives. Uh, And we tend to know that after a time, they were able to come back. Uh, 70 years, some of us will even know the number. Uh, And they they were able to do kind of a limited rebuild of the the city of Jerusalem. Uh, If if you don't know about all of that, by the way, don't stress, we're going to cover that a little bit today. Uh, But what we more often don't get is how the exile is relevant to us here today. Uh, How we can read about the exile, the lead up to the exile and the exile and the the post-exile period in the Bible uh, and, and see things that are relevant, that speak to us in the sense that all scripture is good for us. We know that all scripture is good, but sometimes we struggle with this bit. It's an interesting story, but we're not sure how it comes to our lives, how it can help us grow. And this is, it must be said, a large part of the Bible that we're talking about here. Really, from the book of Judges, um, if you know your order of books in the Bible, all the way through to the end of the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, uh, with the, the possible exception of some of the wisdom literature, the major themes of the books tend to be either the lead up to the exile, why the exile was going to happen, uh, why it did happen, uh, the exile itself happening, or in a few cases, the, the people who had returned from the exile. Uh, and, and all of the, the messages and the promises and the judgments coming from God along the way in that. 
And there are, there are two major themes uh, that, that come out. There's loads of major themes. Come on, we're talking about half of the Old Testament here, more. Um, but there's two major themes that come up again and again and again in the, in the lead up to and during the exile. Um, two things that seem to stand basically at odds with each other that if you've read any of this stuff, you will have run into. Uh, the first is this theme of, of sin that leads to punishment. Here's a happy theme, isn't it? Um, and the second is the promise of restoration. The theme of sin and punishment is really overwhelming when, when you read through it, uh, especially in the lead up to the exile. Um, one of the two passages that, that Jeanette read out for us before uh, from the prophet Isaiah warned of the coming judgment of the exile. We read there, they, Israel that is, do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. But that is not by far the, the strongest or the earliest warning uh, of the judgment that God would pour out on Israel if they failed to keep the covenant he had made with them but way back in the wilderness at Sinai. Probably the starkest, the clearest uh, explanation and warning of the exile actually comes to us before they even walked into the promised land. We see the sin of the people and the resulting exile foreshadowed right back uh, in the Mosaic Covenant itself, which we, we looked at the covenant a couple of weeks ago. And, and you might remember we said at the time that this is a conditional covenant that Israel was living under. Obedience to the covenant would bring, bring blessing. Disobedience would bring curses upon the people. And right toward the end of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we get the details of what that, dis, what that obedience and disobedience would actually result in. Uh, now, Deuteronomy 28 is, is a fascinating read. The first 14 verses of it uh, give you the blessings that would come with obedience. Uh, and then, and they're amazing, by the way. It sounds phenomenal. It actually reads like a new Eden, like a place where humanity or Israel is going to multiply and be fruitful and, and, and have dominion. And it doesn't use those words, but it's basically what's being described. Everything is going to be good. But after those first 14 verses of the blessings that would come with obedience, there are 54 verses of the curses that would come with disobedience. Uh, it gets a bit intense, actually. What's incredible is that these are sometimes very specific and are fulfilled very specifically later in the Old Testament for Israel. For instance, and I won't go into the gritty details here, they're told that persistent sin is going to lead to sieges of their cities and to famines um, and that when the, the cities are besieged, people are going to resort even to very specific forms of cannibalism. Uh, and, and uh, you know, like I said, I won't, I won't go full detail on you here, but in 2 Kings, we actually find stories that detail the exact things that are predicted in Deuteronomy happening, working out on the ground. Let me read you another excerpt, not related to that subject, uh, from, from Deuteronomy 28, from the curses. Uh, and if you want a summary of the bare facts of what happened in the exile, this actually covers it pretty well. Um, this is from Deuteronomy 28. 28 verse 36 and following, if you want to have a look in your Bible. It says, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. 
and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. All these curses shall, and this is skipping down to verse 45 of that chapter, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. That's the exile. And it happened as promised. Uh, the people of Israel rebelled against God. In fact, there is a, a really clear downward trajectory to the, to the nation of Israel from really, really early on. Uh, here, here's the briefest summary of that trajectory of, of Israel that I can manage. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of ways you can divide up the period of history in which Israel was a, was a physical nation in the Old Testament. Um, uh, perhaps the simplest way to separate it is, is how they were governed. Uh, so you have the period of the judges and you have the period of the kings. Um, and in the, in the judges, under the judges, uh, which immediately followed the death of Joshua, the guy who led them into the promised land, the people turned away from God and they worshipped idols. And, and a cycle started up that you can, it's really, really clear to read when you read through the book of Judges. The people would run headlong into idolatry and sin and, and some horrible things. God would discipline them as Deuteronomy 28 had promised, kind of the earlier disciplines there. They would turn back to him for help. Uh, he would send a judge who would deliver them and then the cycle would repeat. They'd dive headlong into sin. They would repent. He would save, um, so on and so forth. I skipped the bit where they got judged there. Um, eight times in the book of Judges, we get these exact words said, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After the Judges came a new period of the kings, ushered in uh, by the prophet Samuel, which Matt uh, talked to us about a bit last week. Uh, and, and after a bit of a false start with Saul the king, things actually seemed to go pretty well with David, though not perfectly. In fact, he had some whoppers as far as sin goes. Uh, but David trusted God, uh, and, and on the back of David's faithfulness, uh, the kingdom prospered under his son, Solomon, although Solomon himself was not especially faithful. Um, but after Solomon, we again enter this kind of just rejoin the clear downward run, with just a few exceptions. You know, the kings of the promised land, uh, sorry, the kingdom of the promised land is, is at that point split in two, into two nations. Uh, and, and, and one side of that has universally evil kings. Uh, the other side has mostly evil kings, with a few who are not as bad, although they are still all sinners. But once again, if you wanted to, the chorus line of this part of the Bible, of the books of First and Second Kings, it would be this. The king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Those words, 27 times in those two books. And where the kings led, the people followed. And regardless of multiple warnings from the prophets that they needed to turn around, things just got worse until we reach uh, the big moment of fulfilment of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. By God's hand, in keeping with his warnings, Judea is, is crushed. The, the, the other kingdom has, has already been crushed and taken to an ex, into exile. They would never recover, really. Um, but the Babylonian army comes, defeats Judea by God's hand, 
Jerusalem is destroyed. The people either die or are carried away into exile, except for a few of the very poorest who are left to care for the land under enemy rule. What's, what's harrowing about this cycle of sin and punishment that is, is that it echoes something else. It echoes the fall. We looked a couple of weeks back at how the calling of Israel was sort of an echo of the Garden of Eden. It was like an echo of creation. God was calling a special people to himself to be his treasured possession in the special place that he was going to give them, the promised land, under his special blessing. The whole thing, it it cries out of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But the problem with it was that their hearts weren't changed. Sin still remained. And so that echo of creation is then followed by countless echoes of the sin of Adam and Eve. As Israel strayed away from God and failed to obey. And the exile, in the end, is just an echo of the exile, the greater exile from Eden. The fall. Just as Adam and Eve are sent from Eden, so Israel is sent out of the promised land. Sin leads to separation from God again. Or really, it perpetuates the separation from God. But then in the face of this dark landscape, and I'm sorry, this has been a a relatively dreary sermon, not dreary, maybe negative sermon so far, we surprisingly find promises that seem to oppose the fall and the exile of God's people. These promises go further than promising a return to the land. That's self-evident when you read them. They promise a restoration of God's people that will undo not just the punishment, but the sin that, that caused the punishment. We read one of those, we read one of those rather this morning uh, from the book of Isaiah. Jeanette read it for us. It was that second reading. There it was promised that God would make his people holy. And it used the image of the fire and the cloud. Uh, now, if that sounds familiar, it's from the wilderness, right? Where God was with his people as the, in the fire and the cloud to express that God would dwell with his people without the separation of the temple. The promises actually, they go even further than that. There are amazing promises that we get through the prophets. In the midst of the calls for judgment, God promises restoration. The prophets foresee a day when, when God's people will have a new heart. You know, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah foresees a day, this is Jeremiah 31, where there will be a new unconditional covenant in which God will transform his people and take away their sinfulness forever. Behold, he writes, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isaiah, again, if you'll humor me for one more of these, foresees a restoration that will literally make the whole creation right. He writes in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. It's not a natural relationship if you've ever met wolves and lambs. Uh, The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Now, if you're a parent, you're kind of having anxiety right now, but you wouldn't have to in this situation because it's safe. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an incredible promise of a world filled with the glory of God. And pivotally, Isaiah foresees that there will be a deliverer who will come and will bring this restoration. He calls him a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and he calls him the servant of the Lord. And we're going to dig into those servant songs a little bit more next week, so I won't cut all that off right now, but do you see now these two kind of contrasting threads in this period? On the one hand, sin and punishment, a people invaded, oppressed, carried off into a foreign land for their sin, deservingly, the Bible would say. On the other, a promise of restoration, Restoration that outstrips the greatest glory that national Israel ever experienced in the promised land. And, the, and you know, so that's the historical context, right, of the, of the exile, as best I can. And here's the big question that we have to ask, that we have to return to, which is, how does the exile relate to us? How are we to read it as people after the cross of Jesus? And there are a couple of ways that we need to answer that question. First, when we read the large parts of the Old Testament that deal with the sin and the punishment of Israel, both in the lead up to the exile and and during the exile and even after the exile, it continues on. Um, There's there's a wrong way and a right way to read those parts of the Bible. Uh, Wrongly, we can read that and we can go, man, they really messed it up, didn't they? That's not how I would have done it at all. Um, that's, that is, let's, let's be real with ourselves right now and say that's pride speaking if we read it like that. The reality that we should recognise as we look at the repeated failings of Old Testament Israel is that they are a mirror for all of humanity to look into at that point. The, the constant, the overwhelming sinful trajectory of Old Testament Israel shows us that humanity... Given, given the greatest chance of success, with God doing most of the heavy lifting 
and all of the possibilities of blessings handed to us. And given the special presence of God among us in the best circumstances, we are still slaves to sin. We still needed a change that went as deep as the heart. And rather than let that drive us to desperation and to despair, we let that point us toward the need for a perfect saviour to come and to rescue us. As we read about the judges who would affect a temporary rescue of Israel, who were themselves sinners, we should read that and we should be reminded of the judge who would come into the world to effect a great forever rescue in perfect righteousness, Jesus. As we read about the sinful kings of Israel who led the people in worship of false gods, we are reminded that we needed and now we have a king who leads us into the presence of God and into his blessings and into right worship of him and never of idols. And specifically, though, we should ask, how do we read about the actual event of the exile? So so we talked a little bit about the sin and the punishment in general. And the answer for that one is a bit surprising. Um, The New Testament authors take the idea of exile and they apply it to the church. Especially in in Peter, when Peter writes his letter to, to... the majority churches, First Peter, have a look at it. Have a look at which churches it's addressed to sometime. Uh, he writes it to a huge number of churches that are majority Gentile churches in a huge region of the Mediterranean. Uh, and he addresses it to the elect exiles. He's saying that although we are now accepted by God, we are still in the midst of the exile. And the reason for that, there's kind of two reasons for that. First, because although the uh, Israelites returned from Babylon, in a deeper sense, the exile had continued because sin continued. Uh, Second, related to the first, is that the exile reflects the greater exile from Eden, like we said, from the special presence of God. And so we are exiles because the exile persists today. Like Israel in Babylon, because we are a people who live in the midst of a sinful world that isn't our home. If you want to look into that a little bit more, we did a whole series on First Peter about two years ago, by the way. We live in hope that the promises of restoration, which we have seen partly fulfilled when Jesus came the first time, will one day be completed. You see, when Israel returned from exile after 70 years, there was only a faint shadow of the fulfillment of the promises that were given to them. The promises of restoration. You know, the people still sinned and they were still oppressed Still, they were just a small state ruled over by larger states than them. Rather than a glory that exceeded the previous glory of Israel, everything was smaller. Everything was less significant. You know, in Ezra 3, uh, which is a book about the return, uh, we, we see them, they lay the foundation of the new temple 
and, and the older men all weep as the rest of the nation rejoices uh, because they see it and they know this isn't it. This isn't the glory that was promised. It's not even as big as the old one. It says that they saw it, those that had seen the old temple wept. In Ezra 9, you know, more than a century after the return, Ezra still wrote that they were a people enslaved. And throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, books which recount the events after return, we see a nation of people who are still gripped by sin and, and rebellion against God. Perhaps, perhaps most significantly in this period, what we don't see of the promises uh, is the new Davidic king. He doesn't come to the throne of Israel. Those promises we looked at last week, or Matt led us through last week, aren't fulfilled in this time. The kingdom's not restored, and so the promises to David and to Israel of a saving king in the line of David remain unfulfilled. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus came to bring an end to the exile, not just the exile from Israel, but the greater exile from Eden, which the exile of Israel was an echo of. And Jesus completed the work needed for the great restoration, for all of the promises to be fulfilled. When Jesus went to the cross and walked out of that empty tomb, he defeated the sin of God's people. He defeated the death of God's people. He created in himself the people of God who would come from every tribe and tongue and nation. He opened the way that we can return into the presence of God as his precious people. Like I said, we're going to continue to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy next week. But because of what Jesus did right now, some but not all of the promises of restoration have come about. Helpful way to look at it, to talk about it, uh, which, which a lot of people do, is to say that we are living right now in a, in a time that we could call the now but not yet. We live in a time when the promises are being fulfilled, but they await their final consummation when Jesus comes back for us. The promises of a new heart has, have come uh, for those who have believed in Jesus. Because in him, we have been made a new creation. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet, and yet we still struggle with a sinful nature within us. We're in a now, but not yet. The promise of the new covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus because on the night before he died, he told us that he was bringing in a new covenant in his blood. By his blood, we are unconditionally accepted by God. It is faith in Jesus now that saves us. And that is a fulfillment of the promises of restoration. Yet that covenant is still working out. The promise that we will be made holy, which is a part of that covenant, is, is now but not yet, right? Our sins have been dealt with. In God's sight, we are holy. We have been justified, but at the same time, we are being transformed. Our sins are being dealt with in that practical, on-the-ground sense. And so the New Testament can say that we are justified by faith. That is to say, we are declared righteous by faith. We're declared sinless by God because of the sinlessness of Jesus. But at the same time, it says that 
uh, as we behold the goodness of Jesus, we are being transformed. And so we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and we are being delivered from the power of sin. The promise of living in the presence of God is another now but not yet promise, do you see? Because although those who believe in Jesus have the very presence of God in us by his spirit, we look forward to a day when we will live in the presence without any of the hindrances of sin. And we'll live in a, a new heavens and a new earth and he will be with us. And we'll be able to see him there with us. Of course, the promises of a perfect world, of a perfect, perfect place, still yet to be fulfilled. The New Testament talks about us as the first fruits of it. The new creation happening in us, looking forward to the new creation of everything. And so in this context, uh, we understand ourselves as exiles. We look at this world and we say, this is our home because, uh, sorry, this is not our home because we have a better home to look forward to. And we can read the prophets and the promises of restoration and we can understand that in Jesus, these are all either promises that are for us to receive now or they are for us to hold as a sure and certain hope uh, because we know that Jesus has done the work, completed the work for them to be fulfilled and he will see them fulfilled and cons consummated at his second coming. Likewise, we can read the calls of God to Israel to purify themselves, to be a people who reflect his glory. Things which people living under sin could not do ultimately. But as the people being transformed out of sin, we can read them and we can see their relevance to us. We can read the accounts of the exile and understand that they give us principles for living as the people of God in exile today. People who live in the now but not yet of the fulfilment of the promises. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish today on an example of that. Just, just, just give you one example. It's kind of a bit of a tidbit to, to lead you into reading this part of the Bible for yourself. Do you ever wonder... How, as a Christian, you're meant to relate to the world around you. What that's meant to look like. You know, we see lots of examples of it from lots of different Christians, don't we? Some people's version of it is you stand on a soapbox and throw things at people. Um, some people's version of it is you should never talk to anyone about Jesus. Uh, some people's version of it is we should separate and we should, we should never be a part of the world. Some people's version of it is we should be exactly like the whole world around us. How are we, as citizens of God's kingdom, to relate to the nation of Australia? at the town of Middleton or whichever town you happen to be from. Uh, in Jeremiah 29, uh, the people of God faced a really similar situation. They were a people in exile in the city of Babylon. Exiles in a world that isn't home. And that's us. We live as God's chosen people in the midst of Babylon, so to speak, in the midst of a world that doesn't know or follow our God. And false prophets were giving the Israelites two false messages. They were either saying, just become a part of it, join in, just, just join the idol worship, join every part of this culture, don't separate. Or more dominantly, uh, have a distinction, completely separate. Have no part of it, have nothing to do with Babylon, keep yourselves pure and separate. And God comes and through Jeremiah, he says no to both of those things. 
He says in Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, for seek uh, sorry, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know, we're not going to fully dig that out today. It's just an example, but the point's fairly clear, isn't it? An exile, uh, an exiled people are to live for the good of the world around them. That's completely separate to those two options that Israel was looking at. We're to live for the blessing of others. It informs how we live as exiles today, doesn't it? It's good and important, vital for Christians to be involved in community outside of their church. It's good for us to seek to make our towns, to make our state, to make our nation a better place. And we're equipped to do that because we have an undefeatable hope as elect exiles, as chosen people who know that this isn't our home. And so we can work for the good of those around us because our good is still coming. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to move into a time of communion after that. Um, and, And as we do that, Uh, What we celebrate in communion is the work to fulfill the promises. The work of Jesus in pouring out his blood and breaking his body that allows us to enter back into the presence of God, that will bring in all of God's people, that will bring not just the restoration of an ancient kingdom, but the consummation of all of creation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to drink the juice and eat the bread uh, in your own time and... And just remember that Jesus defeated your sin and he's invited you back in to God's presence. Thank you, Lord, that your word is good. And in it, you've been working out one plan throughout all of history. Thank you, Lord, um, that as we look at the word, we can see who we are in the light of who you are. Help us to live, Lord, as elect exiles, knowing we are those you have chosen and this world is not our home. Help us, Lord, to live for the good of the world around us. And help us, Lord, to always look to Jesus, our great saviour, who's led us into the new covenant, who has given us new hearts and who leads us on to the day of his second coming. As we eat the bread now and drink the cup, let us look to Jesus. And remember, you have defeated our sin and you have welcomed us in. We pray it in Jesus' name.